Good morning. I will be preaching to you from the book of Hebrews and chapter 2 in that book. Last Lord's Day, we drew from the scriptures that, that baptism is a sign, that it is a visible symbol of invisible grace. We gave our consideration uh, to this, that in our conversion to Christ, the Spirit unites us to Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. Our Lord promises us that this is true. We read it in His Word. It's just that we cannot see that union. We cannot see that grace. So baptism presents to our senses a sign or a symbol that we can see that visibly portrays that spiritual, invisible event. We consider this as well when the Holy Spirit applies the benefits of redemption to us purchased by Christ. Another one of those benefits of redemption is the washing or the cleansing of us from our sin. Our Lord promises us that this is true. We read of it in His Word, but we can't see it. We cannot see the washing away of our sin. But He ordains baptism a physical, visible sign of unseen but promised spiritual, very real, redemptive realities. And we asked a question, and it's a good question to ask. We asked, well, why does the Lord give us baptism in addition to His spoken redemptive promises? Why does He give us baptism if, after all, His promises are true? If His promises can never fail, why does He in addition to those, give us baptism. Is there, we asked, is there some kind of insufficiency with his promise? Is there some kind of weakness in his word? Are are there weaknesses in his gospel promises so that the Lord then has to come along after that and he has to sort of mend them and repair them with a symbol that we can see? You remember remember I quoted from the Puritan Thomas Watson. He, He asked this same question. Here's the way he asked it. He said, is not the word of God sufficient to salvation? What need then is there of sacraments? And he's, of course, referring to baptism and the Lord's Supper. Why do, we, why do we need those if the word of God is sufficient? And he answered his own question by saying this, that it's, it is God's goodness thus to condescend to weak capacities. This is why, we, this is why the Lord gives us baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's not because his word is weak. The weakness and insufficiency is with our faith in holding on to those promises and enduring with those promises. That's where we find the weakness and insufficiency. And so we have baptism. It's a visible sign. We have the Lord's Supper. It's a visible sign. The Lord gives us these things. These, these are where He is working tenderly and He's working compassionately with us according to our weakness. Uh, it's not, there's no weakness or insufficiency when we read of his promise of justification. There's no weakness there. There's no insufficiency in his promise regarding the forgiveness of our sins or of growth and grace and sanctification even unto glory. There's no weakness with any of those things, but we are weak. Our, our faith has uh, a, a weak capacity Uh, to hold on to those perfect promises. Um, 
It is true we are new creatures in Christ. Uh, we don't deny that. We are new creatures. Uh, we have, as we thought last week about it, we, we have the power of Christ's resurrected life. We have the power of his life now in our souls. We are new creatures. We are born again in Christ with new life. Uh, but as someone once put it, we, we still bear in our souls the scarring of having been born first as a lost and corrupted child of Adam. We still bear some scarring, and, we, and we, care, we will carry that until the day we die. It won't be removed until we die. And so a part of that scarring means that uh, we're weak. We, uh, we believe, and yet we still struggle with unbelief. Um, we, don't, we don't have perfected strength yet as we walk by faith in the unseen gospel spiritual reality. So it's because of our weak capacity to believe his promises that our Lord has condescended very tenderly and very patiently to that weakness. And he's given us two things that we can actually see. He's given us two signs. He's given us two symbols of unseen but very real promised gospel realities. They are realities that we must believe And he gives us these symbols not to excuse our weakness, but to very lovingly, very tenderly, very compassionately, very mercifully, and very patiently condescend to our weak capacities and to use something visible and symbolic to strengthen us. And he's not strengthening strengthening us to walk by sight of baptism per se or to walk by sight or by taste of the Lord's Supper per se, in and of themselves, but he gives us these things that we can see to strengthen us to walk by faith in the unseen spiritual realities that these things are symbolizing. Um, on our little hobby farm, we once, had, we once got a pair of lambs who were very uh, afraid of us when we got them. And I would walk out into the pasture where we kept them, and off they went. They would run, they would run all the way over to the far corner. And they had, they had no reason to be suspicious of me. Uh, they, uh, they had no reason to doubt my intention to take care of them, but I would go out, and off they went to the far corner. And so I began to take a bucket with uh, sweet feed, and I would walk out into that pasture, and I would stand near the, the feeding trough, and I would shake the bucket, and it would make that rattling noise, and then I, then I would pour the sweet feed into the trough, and then I would leave the pasture. I'd completely back out of it. And eventually, those little lambs would begin to associate the sound of the bucket, resulting in sweet feed being in the trough. And so I began to do that. This was a daily thing that I did, and very gradually, I began to lessen my distance between me and the feeding trough, and this took, we're talking over the period of time of several weeks, I would remain a little closer and a little closer and a little closer to the trough, and slowly, very slowly, those, those sheep began to feel more comfortable with me nearby. And soon, I didn't even have to shake the bucket. I could, just, I could just walk out there, and the sheep would begin to move closer to me. And then one day, I 
put the sweet feet into the trough, and I just turned the bucket upside down right next to the trough, and I just sat there. So they, they had no choice, but to, if, if they wanted the, the sweet feed, they had to come right next to me, and they did. But this, we're talking over the course of probably at least four weeks, it, it took to, to, to change the way that they thought and to, to realize that I wasn't going to harm them. And so what I was having to do is that I was having to condescend to their creaturely weakness and I had to be patient with them, and it wasn't for the point of promoting that weakness, but it was for the point of working with them where they were at to get them to a better, to get them to a better place. And so it's from God's goodness to condescend to our weak capacities that our Savior commands the use of two, and there are only two, but he commands the use of two Symbols, two symbolic activities that are acceptable in our offering of worship to him, and they are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And as baptism is a visible sign of invisible gospel provision, so also is the Lord's Supper. It's a visible sign of invisible gospel provision, and it's to be a, from the Lord, it's to be a sign unto the believing participant in the Lord's Supper a sign of the offering of our Savior in His death, and it is to be to us a sign of our very real partaking of the benefits uh, that He purchased for us in His death. Of course, his, His body and blood are not physically present with us, for this is a symbolic meal, signing to us the very real offering of Christ in His death, and signing to us our very real partaking of redemption's benefits. And this for the point of being one of the means approved by the Lord and promised by Him to be, to be one of the means by which He, with His blessing and with the working of the Holy Spirit, He will actually, even in the taking of the supper, He will provide us spiritual nourishment and growth. So, in the Lord's Supper, there is an inward feeding, even as we outwardly touch the physical elements that are present with us, there's an inward feeding. There's an inward, there's a spiritual feeding when we hold the bread and when we hold the cup. We're holding those things, but we are spiritually receiving and feeding upon Christ crucified. We're feeding upon the benefits that He has purchased for us. How loving... How, how tender he is with us, how patient to condescend to our weakness, to give us physical, visible things that we can see, that we can hold, that we can taste. It's not because, of his, it's not because his promise of atonement is weak. It's not because his promise is insufficient, but because he's, he's condescending to our weak capacities to help us inwardly feed upon all the benefits of his death with his body and blood not physically present with us, but spiritually present to the faith of true believers. And this is why when we, whenever, whenever we receive the supper, this is why we emphasize his directions when he says that the Lord's Supper is to be received with remembrance of him. We're, we, we are receiving the supper with faith in him, all right? Uh, with no faith, with no entrusting of ourselves to his offering, 
um, tasting this little piece of bread and the juice or the wine that's in the cup, it, it does no good to you, for you. It doesn't do anything. Right? There's no quality in those things. That's not what makes them effective. They are made effective by the blessing of Christ, and they're made effective by the working of the Spirit, but only for those who, by faith, receive the supper. And so today what I'd like to do is to encourage you to remember his death and to remember some benefits applied to us, and we're going to, and we're going to draw these things from the book of Hebrews chapter 2. And let's do this in three points. And here's our first point from Hebrews 2. We are, we are remembering his death, remembering the benefits. This is what we're feeding on today when we receive the supper. So point number one, when we receive the supper, let's remember his suffering was incarnate obedience. When we receive the supper, we are remembering that his suffering was incarnate obedience. Now let's look at this at verses 10 through 13. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Here's what we are being told. In order to achieve the goal of the glory of God by means of bringing many sons to glory, the captain of our salvation had to suffer. He had to suffer. The accomplishment of his mission, that is to say, the merciful salvation of unworthy sinners for the glory of God would only be brought to perfection. It would only be brought to perfect accomplishment through the sufferings of this captain of salvation. His death was necessary to meet the demands of the glory of God, but in order to suffer, in order to taste death for others, what first had to happen? This captain of salvation first had to be conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and he had to be born a man. That had to happen first if he was to suffer for the accomplishment of his mission. We might pause at this moment and contemplate for a bit and behold, even in the humility of his incarnation, to behold his dominion. Even in the humility of his sufferings and in his incarnation, we can behold the power of his rule and reign for he was bringing glory to God in bringing many sons out of the kingdom of darkness and bringing them into the kingdom of light. For accomplishment of the mission of salvation, consider it. 
the eternal Son of God had to become a man. The captain of salvation, and we notice the text tells us, and those who are saved are all of one. That is to say, they are all of the one and same human nature. The captain and those that he, are, that he is saving. He who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified. We are of one nature. We behold this with wonder. Oh, the, the glorious incomprehensibility of the infinite distance between the divine and the human. Let's consider it with great wonder. But consider also with great wonder the incomprehensible union of the divine and the human so that we do not have two partial natures. No, we have two whole, two perfect, and two distinct natures inseparably joined together in one person, the captain of our salvation, who is truly God, truly man, yet one Christ. He had to take upon himself our nature with all of its common infirmities, though without sin, in order to bring glory to God through the salvation of many sons in order to be a qualified mediator between God and man. How could God be glorified and bring many sons to glory by the death of another? How could could Christ stand in our place and satisfy God? He must become one of us. And we consider this with great thankfulness and wonder. For the purpose of the glory of God... In being a qualified captain of salvation, the Son, in order to achieve that mission, had to take upon Himself humanity, and He had to take it upon Himself fully. But you know what? We're weak, aren't we? We're weak. Do you need to be reassured that He really became a qualified mediator? Do you need to be reassured today that he didn't just appear to be a man, that he didn't just have the appearance of a man, but he wasn't really, do you need to be reassured that he was truly man and therefore truly qualified mediator between God and men? Do you need to be reassured? Well, notice in our text. Notice that Jesus is not ashamed to call his saints what? He's not ashamed. He's not, he's not guilty of any lie when he calls us his brethren. His brethren. Here he reassures us that we are one. We are of one nature when he calls us his brethren. That quote there, it's an Old Testament quote there in verse 12. It comes from Psalm 22, verse 22, and that's where David is speaking of this eternal and unbreakable vow of the Son to the Father in the eternal covenant of redemption. There was never a time when the Son was not make, had not made this vow to the Father in this eternal covenant of redemption. There was a vow from the Son to the Father from all eternity past. He vows... 
that He will reveal the Father. He will reveal the Father to men. And to those who love this unveiling of the Father, the Son says of those, He he calls them, My brethren. My brethren. Behold the reassurance of His true incarnation, and even in that at the same time, the reassurance of His love. Oh, to call us His brethren. He made a vow to the Father from all eternity past, a vow to the Father. I will reveal you. And those who love this unveiling, those who love my appearing, they are my brethren. What's the likelihood that the Son would make an eternal vow to the Father and then fail to keep it? What's the likelihood? What are the odds of that? What's the likelihood that the Son would fail to keep the terms of the covenant of redemption? Let this be a reassurance to your soul today. As impossible as that is that the Son would break the vow that He has made to the Father, as impossible as that is, so equally impossible is it that there could be any who have put their faith in Christ but are not given the benefits purchased by His suffering. Let this be of strength to your soul today. When you consider this vow that the Son has made to the Father, wherein He is reassured, we are being reassured, because we get to listen into that, we are reassured of His incarnation, and of his love for us, of the accomplishment of his mission. If you have truly put your faith in Christ, then how sure can you really be? How certain can you really be that you are being delivered to glory as the text tells us? How, how certain can you really be? Should you rest your sense of security and Upon the strength of your own faithfulness, should you rest your sense of security and safety upon the strength of your own obedience? No, receive the Lord's Supper and instead say, O oh Lord, not by my strength, but by, but by yours. O oh Lord, not, not by my faithfulness have I been saved, but Lord, by your faithfulness. Notice the next quote. You see it there in verse 13. It's a revelation from the prophet Isaiah. It's a revelation of a vow, again, from the Son to the Father, that He would, as a man, even in the midst of His sufferings, that He would entrust Himself obediently and unwaveringly to the Father. A vow from the Son to the Father. I will put my trust in you. But did He do it? Did he fulfill this vow? Did he fulfill his mission to accomplish and acquire salvation through his obedience? Yes, he did. Notice the next quote also from Isaiah, where Isaiah prophesied that the Savior would be able to present himself to the Father as the obedient covenant head. Here I am, says the Son to the Father, and with me are the children you have given me. This, is a de- this declaration makes a direct comparison between Christ and Adam. Listen. Consider. 
our first covenant head was Adam, appointed to represent to God all who would be his children by natural generation. As Adam obeys, so it would be imputed to his children. But we know how it goes, don't we? We know how it went. Adam did not put his trust in God. Adam did not put his trust in God. And we lost a righteous representative when Adam sinned. We lost it. And sin entered the world because of Adam. And when sin entered the world, the just and uh, holy consequence and punishment for sin entered the world, that is, death. And death spread to all of Adam's children because all of Adam's children sinned. After Adam was given his mission, after Adam stood by that tree, after Adam did what he did, Adam hid himself from God in shame. There was no presentation of himself. He hid himself from God in shame. But after Christ was given his mission, and after Christ perfected or accomplished his work, through his very real sufferings, he did not hide among the trees in shame. He presented himself acceptably to God with a declaration of his obedience. But he doesn't do it alone. There he is. He presents himself to the Father with a declaration of his covenant, head, obedience, and, oh yes, with him, with him, are all of the children that the Father has given to him by regeneration. Here am I. Here am I. And the children you have given me. Can we be certain? Yes. Can we be for sure that if our faith is in Christ, we will be delivered to glory? Yes. Listen. This is the word of your Savior to you. Hear him say it as he says to the Father, here am I, the obedient covenant head. Here am I, I put my trust in you. Here am I and all the children you have given to me by regeneration. There was Adam, there he was in the paradise temple garden and he disobeyed and he brought death upon himself, he brought death upon his children Christ, as a man in sufferings, trusted. And as a man, even in sufferings, he obeyed. And he won the free gift of life for his children. Through Adam's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Through Christ's righteous act, the free gift of God's grace came and resulted in justification of life. By Adam, the disobedient covenant head was the birth and spread of death. By Christ, the obedient covenant head was the death of death through the suffering of his own death. How can we hold symbols of the body and blood of Christ and not contemplate and be reassured of his incarnate obedience? How can we not hold symbols of his flesh and blood and not contemplate his incarnate obedience, and from that 
the promise that we are acceptably presented to God by His offering. A very real offering from a very real man who even in his sufferings trusted, who even in his sufferings obeyed. We taste the supper with remembrance of the real human substitutionary suffering of our Savior. We feed upon his tasting of real death. We hold symbols that point us to the truth that Christ is a worthy mediator, that he is our obedient covenant head who presents us to God under the wing of his very real, fully accomplished obedience. I will put my trust in you, the Son vowed to the Father. And after he had done that, even in his suffering, he says to the Father, here am I. I I trusted. Here am I. I obeyed. And here are all of the children you've given to me under the wing of my obedience. Therefore, number two, point number two, when we receive the supper, let's remember the destruction of the power of the devil. Verses 14 and 15. Inasmuch then as the children have have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same so that... Through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I suppose you don't need me to tell you that every time you look in the mirror, the mirror doesn't fix the ugly. I'm somewhat personally acquainted with this reality. The mirror does a very good job of presenting, presenting to me my ugly. It has no power to fix any of it. And likewise, the law of God, it has the power to bring a curse. It has the power to declare punishment for those who do not keep it. The power of the law, of the law is to condemn us. There's no power in the law to save us. And what that, what that means is if you are without Christ, you are, you are still, to this moment, you are without an obedient covenant head. You are still, to this moment, if, without Christ, you have no righteous priest who represents you to God. You have no righteous representative to carry your name before the throne. And that means if you don't have a righteous representative, if you are still in a relationship with God that's based upon the terms of a broken covenant, then you are still under the just sentence of death. And it is imprinted upon your heart to know this. It is imprinted upon your heart. You don't even need the Bible to know that this is true that you are under a just sentence of death from your Creator. Of course you know there's physical death. You know that. 
That's obvious. You know that there's physical death. You, you know of the cessation of breathing, of brain activity, however else that's measured. But there's also eternal death, and you know it. It's imprinted upon your heart to know. This eternal death, this unending torment of God's condemning wrath reserved for all who are before him under the terms of a broken covenant and still in full possession of their sins. It's imprinted upon your heart to know that those who sin against God deserve his wrath. And here's what happens. This reality of temporal death and eternal death, you know what it does? It hangs out in your head. It hangs out in your head. And the devil, who himself, of course, faces eternal condemnation, he nevertheless employs the reality of temporal and and eternal death to torment this world. And so you who live without Christ, whether you would openly admit it or not, you know what's coming. And whether you would openly admit it or not, you fear it. You're afraid of it. You fear temporal death. You fear the moment when the breathing will stop. But you are also afraid of what comes after because you know that there is an after that's coming. You know that it's coming. And you are imprisoned in bondage and you are imprisoned under the torment of the fear of it. The devil knows this and he uses it against the world. Without Christ, it's an inescapable fear. There will be an end to this life, and you know it, and you know you can't stop it. And although you may have many freedoms in this life, yet all of that freedom is just a freedom within a prison cell, because it seems like you just can never get out from under the shadow of the fear of dying and the fear of what's coming after The devil knows this and he uses it against you like a tool in his hand. You're subject, the text tells us, to a lifelong slavery, to a lifelong bondage to this fear. The fear of death is, it's wrapped all around you. It binds you completely. So no no matter how many uh, diversions you try to put your mind on, you can't get it out of your head. The devil knows this. And he uses this against you to hold you in fear. Because after all, if you're afraid of it, you'll try not to think about it. And that's exactly what the devil wants you doing. He doesn't want you thinking about dying. He doesn't want you thinking about what comes after. He doesn't want you thinking about the wrath of God. So he uses the fear of that as a tool to get you to try to get your mind on something else. Fear. One commentator says this, the fear of death is something mankind still faces today. He says, how much of our business or our frenzy for entertainment is mainly an attempt to divert our gaze from the shadow of death that that the shadow of death casts across our lives? He says, death is not just an event, it's a power that rules over us. And I would add to that, we all but we also know that because it's imprinted upon our conscience that there's a divine creator. And it's imprinted upon our conscience that we will face his judgment. We're afraid. 
We have this natural fear. You may not want to think about the devil, but the fear of death, both physical and internal, is a power he has over you. It's an instrument with which he wraps up humanity and holds people in a prison cell of fear. Why did Adam and Eve attempt to hide after their disobedience? One reason is because they had a newfound fear of both temporal and eternal death. And, and look what they did. Look how they were driven away from God by this fear, attempting to hide from Him. It's a tool that, devil, that the devil uses. We come into the world lost, and we come into the world condemned, and we know that this life is brief, and we know that after this life is the judgment And we know that that judgment will be the righteous judgment of God. And we know that those who sin against God are deserving of death. We don't even need the Bible to know this. It's imprinted upon our conscience, Romans 1.32. The devil uses this as a tool in his arsenal to hold people their whole lifetime under the sometimes more, sometimes less, but unrelenting fear of what's coming. Now, do I have any good news for you? I have this good news that I can preach to you today, that God sent the captain of salvation, who, because he shared with us in in our flesh and blood, he was able to die, so that through his death he might destroy him who uses death to imprison people in fear. That is, so that he might destroy the power of death and free his children from that fear. David Dixon summarizes summarizes all of it like this. It's a very helpful summary to, to kind of put it all together. He says, sinners without Christ are under the sentence of death, temporal and eternal. Satan hath power of death as the burly, that is to say, the court officer hath power over the pit and the gallows at death to take them away to torment who are not delivered from his power. Christ hath destroyed Satan's power and tyranny in this point in behalf of all his elect and true believers. The way how Christ hath overcome Satan is by his own death ransoming his own. Dear saints, in the Lord's Supper, we hold and we see and we taste the symbols of Christ's true humanity. Let's use them to remember Him who took upon Himself our human nature so that He could die. The divine nature cannot die. The divine nature cannot suffer. The divine nature cannot be altered in any way. It cannot undergo any change from greater to lesser or from lesser to greater. Consider this with great amazement. The eternal divine Son of God with the Father and the Holy Spirit, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, every way most holy, Most wise, most free, most absolute. He did something that he had never done before. He became a true partaker of our limited and mutable flesh and blood humanity. Now what could I say 
that would adequately capture the humility and the love in that so that he could be a true man, so that he could be born under the law, so that he could fulfill all righteousness as a man, so that he could submit himself to temporal death, so that he could submit himself to the wrath of God as the only worthy mediator and substitutionary offering. By willingly receiving upon himself the death and the wrath that we deserve, he not only crushes the head of the serpent, but he takes the serpent's tormenting tool of the fear of death and he crushes that as well. So hold the bread and the cup and remember that he took to himself true flesh and blood and through his death so that he might destroy him who had the power to hold the fear of death over us so that we might be released from it. Being assured that the wrath we deserve has been taken. Being assured that in the day of judgment we will be found to have an advocate who drapes over our shoulders the robes of his own righteousness. I encourage you to receive the Lord's Supper today with thankfulness for his lack of pity. What? Did I just say that? Yes, I just said that. Receive the Lord's Supper today with thankfulness for his absolute lack of pity. That is to say, with thankfulness for our Savior's pitiless destruction of the power of death, for his pitiless destruction of the fear of the grave and then the fear of the judgment to come. Pitiless. Our Savior, through his prophet Hosea, he said this. He said, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O grave, where is your destruction? Pity is hidden from my eyes. That's the captain of our salvation. The fear of death is a plague upon the minds of the lost. The fear of death is a nagging, gnawing, entrenched infection in the conscience of mankind. And the devil uses it to imprison people in fear. But our Savior, by his own submission to death, he looked at pestilent death and he declared, I am your plague, O death. Our Savior, by His submission to judgment's righteous wrath and His submission to death, His submission to the grave for three days, He said to the destructive grave, Ah, oh, grave, I am, I am your destruction. And I have no pity in my eyes. He said it without any pity. He said it without any heart to show it any quarter. Take the supper and remember this that our Savior did not take upon Himself our human nature so that He could enter into negotiations with death, so that He could enter into negotiations with the grave. He came to absolutely slaughter them so that they are no longer enemies against those who have put their faith in Him. And a destroyed tool is no longer effective in the hand of Satan against the Lord's beloved children. 
In the minds of sinners against God, death and the grave, they say, we are your fear, we are your terror, bow beneath our rule and reign. And the helpless, unredeemed sinner has no, has no choice but to bow. Great fear before them. Sure, sure, death and the grave, they say, sure, they, they say, sure, go ahead and work all you want and play all you want. We're still coming. We're still coming. But we have a Savior. And he died, but is alive forevermore. Who, as the captain of our salvation, places himself in between us and the death we deserve. And he looks at death, and he looks at the grave, and he says to them, You have no power over my children, for the life they have is my life in them. You have no power over my children. And without even the smallest pity, he looks at death and he looks at the grave and he says to them, I am your terror, bow beneath my rule and reign. Receive the Lord's Supper today and remember our Savior, most loving, most gracious, most merciful, most long-suffering, most abundant in goodness and truth, who, to the same infinite degree with which he is merciful to his his children, to the same infinite degree he is unmerciful to death and the grave for you who have put your faith in him. Receive the supper and feed upon this. Feed your soul with his absolute lack of pity in his destruction of death and in his destruction of the power of the grave for his children. Remember the captain of your salvation and remember his pitiless slaughter of death in behalf of his children. Remember his pitiless banishment of the fear of it. You know what that means? That means that your faith in Christ isn't all for nothing. It isn't all for nothing. Receive the supper for the sake of being strengthened for perseverance, knowing that your abiding in Christ will not result in death and the grave having any victory over you. Are you ever tempted to think this? Are you ever tempted to slip back into the sphere of, what if it's all for... No, it's not all for nothing. Receive the supper today for the sake of your soul being strengthened for perseverance with Christ. When it all comes down to the end of this life, even then, even in that moment of the cessation of your breathing and the cessation of your electrical brain activity, it has no victory over his children. It has no victory. That's why Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, because of, because of all of that is true, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Be, be immovable. Be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Our third and final point then today. When we receive the supper, let's remember propitiation. Let's look at verses 16 through 18. When we remember this, when we receive the supper, let's remember propitiation. 
Verse 16, for indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. What do we learn here? Well, we learn that our Savior did not come to assume the nature of angels. He came to assume our nature. The Lord's Supper presents to you a ground of our comfort in Christ. He assumed to Himself our nature, thereby being able and qualified to be our priest. He did not cease to be the divine second person of the Holy Trinity. Remaining as he always was, he then became a man. Two natures, one person, one Savior, one Messiah. The mystery of the incarnation, we behold it with great wonder. This is a foundation of our comfort, for this one person is the person who is our great high priest. Truly God, truly man, he is our priest. David Dixon summarizes it in this way. He says, Christ maketh a union of our nature with his divine nature. He goes on to say, when he hath assumed man's nature to his own divine nature, he remaineth the same, he that was before, still one person. So Christ Jesus is the promised Messiah, the second person of the Godhead, very or truly God from everlasting, and very or truly man since the conception of the Virgin Mary. Before his incarnation, having his own divine nature in his person, but now since that time, having our nature also personally united with his divine nature, so to remain both God and man in one person for our good forever. We behold this from the text. We behold these things with amazement and with wonder and with thankfulness because we are speaking of the captain of our salvation. Our Savior came, truly God and truly man in one person for our good forever, and a forever good provided for us by this merciful and faithful high priest is propitiation for our sins. So whatever propitiation is, it must be really good. It must be really good. Well, what is it? John Owen says that when we think about this word or this concept, that we need to think of four things. All right? You note takers, you can put down four things. Owen says we need to think of four things whenever we think of this word propitiation. He says in the use of this word propitiation, there is always understood first an offense, crime, guilt, or debt to be taken away. Second, there's a person offended to be pacified, atoned, or reconciled. So there's a crime, and there's a person that that crime has been committed against. Third, Owen says, there is a person offending, a person to be pardoned or accepted. 
And fourth, there's a sacrifice or other means of making the atonement. Now, we know that the offense is ours, don't we? We know that the crime is ours and that the crime is against a holy God. We have incurred a debt. God told Adam, if you disobey, the penalty is death. That's the penalty that we have incurred. That's the debt we owe. Because God is holy. Anything less than perfect righteousness deserves the penalty of death. Anything less than perfect righteousness is a crime that deserves death because God is a righteous judge. And God is the one who is offended. And you are the offending person who needs to be pardoned or accepted. And here we see in our text, Christ is the one who offers the sacrifice to make atonement. Propitiation, the acceptable provision of atonement to satisfy God's righteous justice against sin. We cannot be accepted by God without first God accepting the payment for our debt. But how acceptable do you suppose Christ to be before the Father being the second person of the Holy Trinity? Let that strengthen your soul today. How acceptable do you suppose Christ is before the Father in the offering of Himself in His death being in one person also a righteous man? who offered himself as a true man to truly die, to truly take to himself the full punishment for our sin. How acceptable is this priestly offering given that he is truly God and truly righteous man? Feed your soul with this when you receive the Lord's Supper today. He who is the second person of the Holy Trinity had to be made like us so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest to make the only propitiation that our holy God would ever accept. But did God really accept this offering? Remember what Christ says at the throne of God, here am I. And not and not me by myself alone, here am I, but also being presented safely, being presented acceptably, are all the children given to me. So as acceptable, and we consider this with great wonder, as acceptable as our captain of salvation is, as he presents himself to the Father, here am I, just as acceptable are all of his children. No less acceptable before the Father. These who have been saved by the work of this great captain of salvation, just as acceptable. Feed your soul with this when you receive the supper today. That punishment has to be received, and it will be received by you, or it will be received by a substitute. It must be received. God must And he will have his justice satisfied. 
There's no permission to enter the Holy of Holies. There's no loving welcome to the throne of God without, the, without first the shedding of the blood of the sacrifice, without first the consuming of the sacrifice and the fire of God's wrath. There are no exceptions to this. Do not say to yourself, well, I'll be fine. I'll make it on my own. No, you won't. And it's even imprinted upon your heart to know that that's not true. God is holy. Your Creator will be satisfied. His justice will be met one way or the other. One way or the other, it will be met. The Son of God came, He became like His brethren to offer a sacrifice fully consumed under the wrath of God, a sacrifice that God would accept once for all time. And this is our hope. And this is, this is your only hope. So, dear saints, let me conclude with, with this thought. Are you weary today with your own temptations? Are you weary under the burden of your own sufferings? Remember Christ, who was also tempted and who also suffered, but did not sin, but did not fail, but was faithful. And to this day and unto the eternal day will always be faithful. Has your faith grown weak with any doubt? And because of that weakness, are you struggling with some discouragement today? Your Savior knows that. He knows that. He knows how weak you are. And if me being a shepherd, me being the sinner that I am, with all of the imperfect ways that I worked with my own sheep, what could we say of him who's the perfect shepherd? Who gave his life for his sheep. What could we say of how much he loves us? What could we say of his tenderness with us and of his patience with us, of his compassion? What could we say of his perfect, glorious condescension to our weakness to give us what we need to strengthen our faith? His promises that we have considered from the scripture today, they are true. And he condescends to our weakness. And he gives us something that we can see. He gives us something that we can hold. He gives us something that we can taste. These symbols that we might be strengthened to walk by faith in the offering that he's made for us. That that we might walk by faith in the victory and then triumph, the accomplishment of his offering. That we might have our vision set upon those unseen benefits that have been assured to us even here today from his word. Let's receive the supper today for the strengthening of our souls as we remember our Savior.